So we're going to be finishing tonight. Our text is going to be the rest of um, Titus chapter 1, verse 1, as Phil started last week and, and went through the beginning, how Paul basically, um, in what Phil went over last week, he went over who he was, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the rest of verse 1, he dedicates to the, the purpose for which he, who he is and now why he is writing this letter. Um, before I, we start that, I wanted to just, by way of disclaimer, um, Elizabeth and I talked about this for a while this week. Um, the, our heart behind this and, and this, this church plan is to be faithful to the Word of God, to not add to it, to not subtract from it or skip over from it. So, as, as we study texts... It is our commitment, even as infallible, or I'm sorry, as fallible men, to seek to stand on the infallible Word of God and to not overlook or skip over um, tougher parts of that. And that's what we're going to be dealing with tonight um, in some of the words here that Paul used. So our heart behind this is to stand firmly and completely on Scripture and preach what Scripture teaches and nothing more and also nothing less. So um, if we're accused of having an agenda, that's it, to preach the Word of God as best as we, we can and preach every Word of God. I told Elizabeth last week, I said, Phil came up and preached last week, and to use the analogy about, you know, leaving meat on the bone, I was like, I feel like I went home last week after Phil's sermon, and there was no meat, there was no grease, there was nothing left on the bone. It was, it was completely used and consumed, and, and that's what we want to do as we go through verses because words matter. So as we start into this, we're going to recap. I'm going to read the first three verses here just so we read the introduction in its entirety. Um, in verse one, Paul says, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So as we start here, what we're going to be, what I'm going to be picking up on is this section here where Paul says after um, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and we're going to focus on for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So our first point, um, the three points that we're going to have, the first one is going to be the focus of the sake of the faith of God's elect. What does that mean? Why, why did he use those words? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Um, looking at the word for faith here that's used, and I'm probably mispronouncing this, but it's um, pistis or pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S in the Greek. And studying this word, trying to get to the true heart to make sure the translation was accurate, um, the Greek definition for it is moral conviction, reliance particularly on Christ for salvation or redemption. It is derived from the, na from the noun form of pitho, which is a faith or a trust or a confidence or a belief in truth. Then the other word here that we have to look at is the faith of God's elect. Elect is translated, actually, it says more accurately in the NASB, NASB as chosen or elikios. And defined it is to select or choose with implications of also an accessory idea of kindness, favor, and or love. So, as we focus on this phrase, for the sake of the faith of God's elect... The question I feel like we, we have to first interact with, because he could have just said, for the faith of the sake of God's people, or for the sake of the faith of God's children. But he says, Paul says here, addressing Titus, the sake of the faith of God's elect, or synonymously, God's chosen. So the question that I came to my mind is, okay, so if they're chosen by God, then why is Paul concerned with the faith, the sake of their faith? Why is the faith of God's elect even necessary? If God has sovereignly elected people or chosen people, then why is Paul doing this for the sake of these chosen people? Hasn't God already completed that work? If he's chosen them, what does Paul need to do to add to that work that God has already done? And the answer that I want us to spend some time looking at and looking at biblical examples is, yes, it's true that God ordains the ends. But he also ordains the means to bring about those ends. And 
That's an easy statement to make, so I want us to look at some scriptural examples to see if it holds up and if we test that statement against scripture, if it stands. So the first example that came to mind was, okay, so if God is using the means, if Paul is writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect, the sake of their faith, and they're already elect, why is that happening? So if you um, look at an example in Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 14, Real quick context, this is after the Lord is um, given the commandments to, the, uh, to Moses. The children are down at the foot of the mountain worshiping a golden calf. And, and picking up in verse 7 of Exodus chapter 32, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with, great, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. And, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So, the question here we have to ask from this text, did God change his mind? Did God make a plan? The people disobeyed. He altered it, said, I'm going to wipe them out and start over. And then Moses change the Lord's mind? Well, let, we look to Scripture to answer that. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 29, using the, NA, the NASB, he writes, Also the glory of Israel, God, will not lie nor change his mind, for he is not a man that he would change his mind. Did God change his mind? Clearly not. If we believe all Scripture to be accurate and breathed out by God and useful for teaching, Scripture does not contradict Scripture. The Lord did not change his mind because Moses convinced him to. So then again, we're left with one other example here I want to look at in 2 Kings, also still in the Old Testament. 2 Kings verses 19, 20. It says, Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, said, sent word to Hezekiah, saying, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. I have heard you. It says in the NSB, it translates, because you have prayed about him, I have heard you. But if you look in verses 25 through 28, what he was, what he was saying that he had heard and therefore uh, decided to do, he says in verse 25, Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. Now I have brought it about that you would turn fortified cities into heaped, ruined heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were powerless. They were shattered and put to shame. They were like the vegetation of the field and the green grass, like grass on the housetops that is scorched before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down, you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me and because of your complacency has come up to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my and my bridle in your lips and i will turn you back by the i will turn you back by the way by which you came god had already determined long ago but still used hezekiah's prayer hezekiah's prayer here to bring about what he had already set forth he says it himself i've already done this in fact what you're doing <laughs> was part of my plan to bring this about and God still says in verse 20, says, Because you have prayed to me, I have heard you. So we are forced to deal with in our text today, looking at Paul is writing to a group of people that he identifies as God's chosen, set apart, favored elect or children. And he's doing something for the very sake of the faith that is their saving faith. If we look at the New Testament, here's a wonderful, wonderful example. 
um, in the New Testament in Acts chapter 13. This is them preaching. Paul and Barnabas here um, are preaching. And this is wonderful to look at. In starting in verse 44 again of Acts chapter 13, it says, The next Sabbath day, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. It's very, very important to note here, who was Paul preaching to in verse 44 of what we just read? He was preaching to an entire crowd, right? It was the city gathered. It was a multitude of people. It said that they were following them around, begging them to preach these things again. Who was it that Paul and Barnabas preached to? Did they specify, did they pick people and pull them out from the crowd and speak individually to them? No, they preached to the mass. They proclaimed the word of God, the truth of the gospel to the masses. And what happened? In verse 48, what does it say? It says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Going back to our text for today, we can see Paul doing something in an effort to bring about the faith of the very elect that God had already elected and was appointing to believe. It's a gracious and merciful thing that God grants the very means to bring about the ends that he has already ordained and sees fit in his grace and sovereign wisdom to use fallen people to bring about these perfect, perfect, perfect plans. Those appointed believed. Appointed means in the Greek, it says it was teso, T-A-S-S-O, to appoint or ordain, or ordain to a position or to set apart. So again, if we look at what Paul is doing here, Paul is the same Paul that's writing our, our text today. He is preaching something to an entire mass that is only going to be believed by those who have been set apart to receive it in faith. But Paul's doing what he's commanded to do. He's preaching to that masses. He's preaching to the multitude. In our very, I mean, if we look at what we're preaching on in verse 3 of Titus 1... Again, it's, it, and Blake's going to preach on this, but just to touch on it real quickly as an, another example of this. So Paul has already said here, the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life. But in verse 3 he says, and at the proper time manifested, he manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul identifies his God-given, completely graciously assigned role in this plan of redemption that God has for his people. It is true, biblically speaking, and again, we can't deny it, words matter. It's true that God has elected people. God has elected people. People don't elect people. God elects and commands his elect to preach the word so that the other elect, that he is are elected, hear the gospel for the sake of the faith of God's elect. We are to preach the gospel. God's eternal life promised to his elect before the ages began was manifested in his word through the preaching with which Paul the Apostle Paul was entrusted. He was given the gospel for the sake of the faith of God's elect. <laughs> I promise we didn't plan this, but he already read this earlier. Another example, Romans 10, 14, and 15. This is as wonderful a verse on this topic as, as I could think of. So Paul says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in, whom, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The hearing of the gospel is God's sovereign. It is the means of God's sovereignty using... I'm sorry. The hearing of the gospel is the means that God has sovereignly used to bring about the saving faith of His elect, of His children. 
He's ordained it that way. And it's, we have no more place to question that than we do why we were made the way we are. Who are we to answer back to God? This is the way God designed his world. He existed before times eternal. He exists now. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He has the right to do with his clay as he sees fit. And he has made us in his image to do these things and to bring about his perfect plans. We are called to share the gospel. We are not called to worry about who is the elect. We are called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is what we need. I, um, I heard a pastor one time say he was visiting with um, the, his pastor who was on his deathbed. And he was asking him, you know, how are you feeling? Are you just kind of the, the questions, I guess, that you would ask to someone dying. And he says, I just want to finish the race. And the pastor said, well, you, well, you are. Are you here? He said, I'm not, he said, as long as I'm here, my faith is ongoing. He said, the Lord's going to continue to endear me. I need the gospel as much today as I need the day my heart was changed. The gospel should, the reason that I am callous to the gospel is I don't preach the gospel to myself enough. If we're reminded of the truth of the gospel that God created us graciously, first of all, I think we're all happy we're here. We're all happy to be alive. Like Blake was talking about, we didn't deserve that. We didn't earn that. Not one of us did something to earn existence. God granted us that. He created us in His image to reflect His glory, and we have all trespassed against that. R.C. Sproul calls it cosmic treason. We have committed an eternal offense because we've offended an eternally holy being. And He is perfectly just to condemn each and every one of us to an eternity of repayment. A good example that I heard one time, um, my former pastor said, he said, we think about this, he goes, because people will say, well, my sin's not that big. He said, think of it this way. He said, John, what would you do if you were sitting on your back porch and someone hopped your fence with a backpack on and he ran over the side of your fence, did something in the corner and jumped the fence and ran out? And so you may call the cops, you may yell at him, you may run. He's pr probably nothing, though, is ever going to happen to that person. That same person wearing the same backpack jumps the fence at the White House He's not going to get out of the yard good before he's got secret service. He's going to go to jail for a very long time because they're going to examine his motives. And the point in that teaching is, it's not necessarily what we do, it's who we have offended. Our offense is eternally offensive because it's against our eternally holy creator. And the only way we make that offense right is eternal judgment. And God is perfectly righteous to let every one of us face that. But praise God. The joy of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is He is merciful and He loved us in that while we were still sinners, He sent His own Son, Christ, to live this life, tempted in every way as you and I are, but yet without sin. And we were talking about this. It said, you know, if the wages of sin is death, it's interesting. Jesus would have lived physically forever. He had no, death had no claim on Him. Death didn't have its, aha, we've got Him. The wages of sin is death. Jesus had no sin. His physical death was 100% voluntary because death had no claim on him. And because of that substitutionary atonement, that payment, he has cleared the debt for all that repent and believe in him and in his resurrection. And the resurrection is so important because it was God's seal of approval. that Yes, this pays it. This is sufficient. I accept this on behalf of any that call upon the name of my son. The gospel is our hope. Phil pointed out last week that slaves do not choose their masters, but are rather chosen by their master. Similarly, man does not elect anyone. God alone does this. As men and women, we are commanded to be his witnesses or his messengers. Like Phil said, we're not apostles anymore, that door's closed, but as far as messengers, we are to be God's Christ's witnesses, his, his messengers, his proclaimers on this earth to everyone. I love Vody Bauckham one time at a conference. He said um, he had given a great speech and a woman stood up and asked him the question, very out of context and everything, but, you know, isn't it true, Vody, that you, you subscribe to, you know, reform theology or election or predestination? He said, well, I'm not really sure what that has to do with our topic today. He said, um, she said, well, why would you spend so much time preaching the gospel to your children if, you're, if they're just going to be elected anyway? He said, because I don't see floating E's above everyone's head. 
He said, if my children die and go to hell, it will not be because they didn't hear the gospel in my house over and over and over. It's a really easy way for us to give ourselves a pass, me being the worst one I would suspect in this room of preaching the gospel to people, when if, I, if we take that mindset of, well, you know, it's going to happen anyway, it's, it's just a way that we can lazily avoid our role, our commanded role to preach the gospel. Let God worry about the election and let us worry about doing what we've been told to do. For the sake of the faith is what we need to be focused on. Uh, the second part, going um, through our verse here, through our text, the second part is we're going to look at um, the knowledge of the truth. And this is big. The knowledge of the truth. Faith and knowledge. And we see this here because if we look at, the, again, how he ties this text together, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Faith and knowledge must go hand in hand, and it's imperative. If our faith is not firmly rooted in the truth, then it will not last. For example, there are many, many different types of belief systems, religions, philosophies, all of this. And what separates saving faith from those other secular or worldly faiths? Truth. There's only one objective truth. It's truth which separates this, and this is what Paul's concerned with here, their knowledge of the truth. Not just that they were knowledgeable or philosophical or that they loved to think on things, but they, they were rooted in basing their knowledge and their doctrine on truth, and that their faith was based on the knowledge of truth. How can we know this truth then? If we acknowledge and agree that it's important and imperative that we, if we are by God's grace, God's children or God's elect or chosen, if we are his children by his grace, then how can we focus on this knowledge of the truth if we agree it's important? Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Great place to start and for all of us to remain is the fear of the Lord. It's Sinclair Ferguson has a really good book called Grow in Grace, and he talks about the the, the fear of the Lord is so misunderstood in our time because it's a wonderful thing. And Isaiah 11 talks about Jesus, Jesus himself during his time on earth learning the fear of the Lord, and it was his joy. And Ferguson talks about in that book, we think of it from a servile fear of being servants against um, standing under overbearing or domineering masters. He said when we're Saved when God saves us and changes our hearts, that fear should be transformed to what's called a filial fear or the fear of a son before a loving father. Um, we want our sons to, if we're fathers, we want them to fear us, but not not in a not in a mean way. And I know this could be said a lot more eloquently, but it's just the truth. There needs to be that respect, that holy fear. The Bible says that is the beginning of wisdom. We have to have an appropriate view of God if we're going to come before Him and ask for His wisdom, for His knowledge of the truth. Titus 1, 10 and 11, he says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Knowledge of the truth is also our defense against the pain that comes from believing false doctrines. If we are not rooted in truth, we will be blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes our way, and it will cause pain and heartache. In Hebrews 13:9, the author says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We must be able to filter everything through God's Word. We have to be able to do that. It is imperative if we're going back to what Paul's concerned with here, our knowledge of the truth. And you all probably all heard me say this now, but I operate on examples. I just, I have to visualize things. I think about stuff. And I was thinking about, Elizabeth was telling us this past week, our water filter on our refrigerator went out. And I thought, okay, what, is this, what does this thing do that I'm about to go pay money for? Well, it's taking water and it's running it through. Well, I'm like, I can drink water out of the tap. It's fine. But it's t the water is going through and it's filtering out everything that's harmful. It's filtering out impurities and bacteria and things and giving us what? The purified remaining substance, which is good for us, which is healthy. That was what I was thinking about as far as to illustrate this. 
God's Word has to be our filter on a daily basis. Vody talks about it. We have to have biblical worldview. We have to be looking at the world through, if we had glasses on, the lenses of Scripture. Because otherwise we have no hope to filter the things that we interact with on a daily basis, to process decisions, to make wise decisions. I've said so many times, I said, I know there are a lot of unsaved people who have good marriages. What I don't know is how that's possible. I love my wife to death. I don't know how in the world you get through two days of marriage if you're not doing it under biblical instruction, sacrificing and striving to live complementary to one another as God has called us to, has instructed us. We have to filter our daily thoughts, words, and decisions through God's Word, through Scripture. And as we've seen, it also it says in other scripture, and his commands are not burdensome, they're for our good. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3, Peter gives us a warning. He says in verse, um, ch- again, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Our knowledge of the truth is a part of God's means of grace for protecting His children and keeping us and saving us from false teaching. There's so much more to, to unpack on this topic, but by, for, for the sake of time and what we're discussing tonight, part of the means of God's grace, this knowledge of the truth, it protects us from being led astray. There's obviously biblical categories about people that appear to be Christians, who the, the seed that sprang up but then withered away. I believe this is important and vitally important for us to focus on because this is part of the means. So Paul sees the faith, the initial faith to be imperative, but then he also sees the knowledge of the truth to be imperative because it keeps people tied to the truth where they're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but they're focused on the truth of who God is and who we are before God. And again, if we focus on that like Blake was talking about tonight, a regenerate heart when they when we if we look at the truth of the gospel will be broken over and over and over again we will always look at this beauty of Christ's sacrifice and what he's done for us and be broken over it it is the quickest way for us as a discipline to basically humble our hearts before the lord and and be left with nothing but thanksgiving for why god would do these things for us this knowledge of truth though is not an end in itself, and this is very, very key for us to focus on. The knowledge of this truth is not an end in itself, but rather it is to be used as a means to that which accords with godliness. Which brings us to the the next part of our text for today, which accords with godliness. So the which here, what it is referring to, if you have the ESV, it says the knowledge of the truth, comma, which accords with godliness. The word is pointing to the knowledge of the truth. The which is connecting the, the concept of that which accords with godliness to the knowledge of the truth. So, the knowledge of God's truth, excuse me, the knowledge of God's truth will provide and produce godly living in his people. In his true people, the knowledge of truth will produce godly living or godliness, fruit, Different things we see referred to in the New Testament. Godly living, good works, godliness, the fruit of the Spirit. It is different in those that profess God, but then what? Deny Him by their works. If we look down at the very end of chapter uh, 1 of Titus, verses 15 and 16, talking about these Jewish leaders or the members of the circumcision party, he says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but what? They deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And I think it's very important for us to to really look at the language that Paul uses here and notice the language. He says, these people profess to know God. They're saying it right. 
they what? Didn't say, but they invalidated. They said, but they deny him by their works. This is a very serious warning and a serious, serious word of caution for us to understand that our actions can nullify our profession. Godliness not only should, but it must demonstrate our knowledge of the truth. It absolutely is imperative. In Matthew 23, verses 1 through 3, reading what Jesus said, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Now again, we have to see here that Christ is instructing people to do what the Pharisees say because they say it right. But in the context of what we just read from Titus here, I would submit that they denied him by their works. They are then detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. I think all descriptions of, I don't think anyone in this room wants to deny our faith, wants to be considered detestable, disobedient, or unfit for any good work. I thought about an example of this as we were talking, um, as I was looking at this text and, and going through this. And Elizabeth teased me because she said, I do always use some type of movie um, analogy or, or so forth. But there's a television show I was watching, and the main character sitting there with his friends, and they're all talking at lunch. And they're talking about this, this uh, respected person in their field that's going to be coming to visit. And the main character's like, oh, what big deal, this guy, he's not, nothing special, y'all are, you know, star crazed, just kind of giving his buddies grief for revering this guy so highly. Well, after several minutes of this, the man walks in, and he walks over to the table and starts talking to the main character, says, I've been excited to meet you. He's like, I can't wait to work with you. Well, the main character goes from harassing his three friends to starry-eyed, telling him how much he had, has always admired him and can't wait to work with him, and they're just so all so thrilled that he's here and they have this exchange he walks off and he turns around to sit back down with his at his table with his friends and they're all just kind of looking at him and he says what y'all never seen a hypocrite before so it was it's a stupid analogy but it's it's such a glaring example of how bad it looks when we preach something and then go do the exact opposite and if we are not willing to turn around and say yeah this is me i'm a hypocrite which I don't think is any of our desire. We're, I'm going to be a hypocrite enough when I'm trying not to be. We must take these things seriously. We must strive to have the knowledge of truth which accords with godly living. In Titus 2, verse 7, Paul is telling Titus here. What does he say to Titus? Show yourself in all respects to be what? A model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Paul instructs Titus to be a model of good works. He is to model the good works that he has been clearly entrusted by Paul and obviously by God to teach the people. But he's not just taught to teach them. He's taught to teach them and then lead by example, not just instruction. It is supposed to be leading in a way that makes people want to follow his leadership, that he makes people want to imitate him. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Phil said this over there while we were sitting there. He said, We should never learn something and just let it die with us. If we learn something valuable, we should pass it on. Christ appeared to Paul, gave Paul commands, gave him instructions, gave him a, an assigned role in his plan that he had already worked out. And Paul ran the race, taught others, told them to do the same. He was teaching Titus here, you be a model for these, these Cretan Christians. You be a model for them. Don't let them accuse you of preaching and not doing. You be a model of good works. And by the way, in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech. He didn't value one over the other, but he saw them completely inseparable. If the knowledge is left for the knowledge's sake, it's going to do... We'll get into that in just a second. Paul is essentially instructing Titus to set the godly example for the Christians in Crete that he is responsible for teaching them. First Christ, then Paul, then Titus, then the Christians in Crete, then so many others and so many others. This godliness partnered with the knowledge of truth helps us also to avoid self-deceit. In James 1, 22 through 25, James writes, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. We hear the truth and then we must do good. This godliness or these good works are also good for us. God is so gracious to assign us work to do and then make it for our benefit also. It's for His glory, but we receive benefit from it. Look at what Paul says in Titus 3, verses eight, verse 8. He has just recapped the gospel. So the saying is the gospel message. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The knowledge of the truth ought to fuel us for godly living. If our hearts have truly been changed by the truth of who Christ is, we cannot sit constantly under the weight of it and not be fueled for godly living. Now, we're all going to make mistakes. Paul wasn't perfect. He didn't get it perfect on earth. We're not going to either. But I was talking to Paul about this. I said, it's like shooting a bow and arrow. May shoot a hundred arrows and never hit the exact bullseye, but every time you're trying. And the harder you try and the more time you put into it, the more you, you keep it more close to the bullseye than you once were. Our goal every day should be to decrease that Christ may increase in us. This is also, and I thought this was really, really a cool counter uh, or the opposite of this. The opposite of this godly living is not just secular living. It's unfruitfulness. Look at what Paul says in verse 14 of Titus as he's giving him his final parting words. He says, and let our people, obviously he's referring to Christians, let our people, let Christians learn to devote themselves to, to good work. So it is to help cases of urgent need. He could have said urgent need and said and been done with it, but he says, and not be unfruitful. The opposite of good works is just being unfruitful. It's salt that has lost its taste. It's worthless. We're no longer producing if we're not striving for to live out good works. We must be striving to have our knowledge of the truth accord with godly living. So then the question is, as we go through these things, how do we apply this? How can, this, how can we turn this into daily living and fruit. The first answer I have for you is to pray. (laughs) To pray. God is a loving father to his children. He wants us to ask him for things. He wants us to ask him for things. And I think about this all the time, and I I hadn't had a chance to talk to most of y'all about this, but I I didn't have the traditional father figure in my house. I grew up with my, my grandmother, mother, and uh, sister, so I think about this, and I'm, I'm learning on my as I go with trying to be a father. But I thought um, one of my former pastors, he said, "Johnny, you get upset if one of your kids comes to ask you something if they're respectful." I was like, "No, of course not." And then he quoted, "Well, if you who are evil know how to hear your ch- children out and answer their questions, and you don't get mad at them for asking you something," I said, "No, of course not." Well, then why would we think God would get upset with us for asking? Even the things that He's already planned on giving us. He wants us to ask for. I thought about this too as I was really trying to think about this. Why would the Lord use, the, the, why, would, why would Paul be so concerned with the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth for the elect that was already elect before the ages began? And I was like, I, I thought, I always plan to work as hard as I can to make sure my children have meals, that they always have food if they're hungry. I always plan to provide for them. From before either of them were born, I planned on, if we have children, I'm going to make sure by God's grace that I can always provide for their physical needs. But I still appreciate when they come and ask me for it. And honestly, if I'm being honest, there's times where there's food in the cabinet or there's, this is ready for them, but them coming and asking me reminds me and draws my attention back to it. Now, God is not a forgetful father, so the analogy breaks down, but the point is, the Lord ordains us to communicate with Him and ask, us for, ask Him for things. He's ordained it that way. We must pray as a means to bring about God's perfect will. I love this quote. I was looking at this this morning. The pastor, Leonard Ravenhill, had a great quote that applies, I think, or gives us instruction on this topic. He said, To think like a Calvinist, 
live like an Armenian. His meaning behind this was, his heart for this was, he says, it is up to God's sovereign will who accepts or rejects Christ. But we are commanded to evangelize and pray for the lost. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, praying for the lost. Are, are we thankful for those that prayed for us when we were lost? I thought about the time when I was regenerated and just... I was 28 years old, and I can't imagine how many prayers had gone up for me for the Lord to change my heart. And I'm thankful for every single one of them because every one of them was part of God's will to bring about change in my heart. What if we begged God to change the hearts of the people we preach the gospel to? How do we apply this? We beg the Lord to change hearts. Moses didn't change God's mind, but he used Moses' prayer to save his people. Me begging the Lord to change somebody's heart isn't going to make them elect or not elect, but it may be the very means that God is using to bring about salvation for His children. We must pray and evangelize with everything we got. Beg people to come to Christ. Implore them to come to Christ. Number two, we have to seek the knowledge of the truth. We have to. We have to seek this knowledge. We cannot be lazy with it. Proverbs, or, I'm sorry, James 1, 5-6 through 6 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Ask God for wisdom, trusting that he's going to provide it to you. For you want a deeper knowledge of his truth, ask him for it. Ask him for it. In asking for it, what also should we do? Proverbs eighteen fifteen: An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. We cannot ask God for something that we're willing to put nothing into. Again, I heard Vody give this example one time. He said, you know, you could take two farmers. One farmer could plant this field. One farmer could farm this field. This farmer walks out and says, the Lord, Lord does all things. I'm going to stand here. If he wants me to have a crop, I'll have a crop. And he stands over with his arms crossed and waits. God, if you're going to give me a crop, give me a crop. This farmer goes over here and he plows the field. He tills it. He plants it. He sprays it. He cultivates it. He tends it. Then he goes home and gets on his knees and begs, Lord, please, let it bear fruit. Which of those is God going to bless? God ordained it that way. It's not for me to figure out. It's not for us to figure out, but it's for us to tend and to plant. We should not ask God for wisdom or knowledge of the truth if we're not willing to seek after it. It would be like, and y'all have probably heard me use a silly example. It would be like me saying, Lord, just please give me a six-pack. And instead of ever going to the gym, I sit and eat Cheetos and go to McDonald's. It ain't ever going to happen. God just ordained it that way. <laughs> we should not be willing to ask God to give us wisdom if we're going to be too lazy to seek it. If we're going to ask Him for knowledge of the truth, we need to be willing to, at the very least, dig into His Word. Proverbs 16, 16 says, How much better is it to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. We're to value wisdom and understanding. And I think about that all the time. What if I truly thought, what if I truly valued wisdom more than, wisdom, more than silver or gold? We all work hard at our jobs. We all want to make a good living. We all want to do good things with the provision God gives us. I wish I sought wisdom as much as I seek success in my job and success in other things. But we are to value wisdom and understanding. We must also always be aware of the pitfall of, the pride, of pride as the Lord gives us a deeper knowledge of Him. We must always be aware of this. In 1 Corinthians 8.1, the NASB, I looked this up because I wanted to see their translation of it also. Paul says, Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes one conceited, but love edifies people. The NASB translates this. I believe in the ESV it says knowledge puffs up. The NASB says knowledge makes conceited. This is a great example or reminder of how deep our depravity runs. Life-giving, God-provided, wonderful knowledge in the hands of sinful man makes us arrogant. If, if, if any of you have read the screw tape letters, I have not. I went to a, a reading of it. They had it at the Orpheum one year, and the guy did a dramatic reading where he recited a long, long section of it. And it has stuck in my memory ever since he did it. He's talking about 
the, if, if you're familiar with that, it's the demon that's appealing to his, I believe he was the uncle demon that was teaching him how to basically torment Christians. And he's reporting back to him, he says, oh, you know, it's, it's bad. He goes, he's even developed a true sense of humility. The superior, the, the, the veteran demon said, ah, have you brought it to his attention? That's what we do. That's what even in our sinful flesh we still struggle with as, as Christians. Man, look how humble I'm getting. This knowledge that we have to beg God for, if we are not careful, will puff us up and make us absolutely pharisaical. That we're saying all the right things and we forget to do any one of them. How then do we ever hope to balance this receiving of God's wonderful truth and avoiding arrogance? 1 Corinthians 4-7 is a verse that is one that I need every single day and it so applies in so many different areas. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 verses 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if though you did not receive it? The farmer in our analogy over here that plants and has a perfect crop, if he boasts in it, why? Did he make those seeds germinate? Did he make them grow? No. He did what God ordained for him to do as his role as man, and he was completely, whether he acknowledges it, admits it, or ever gives God thanks, he was completely dependent on God's grace to bless it and make it fruitful. Paul did this for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, because God gives us his Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds to the knowledge of the truth and to sanctify us and make us look more like Christ. This is an excellent verse for our everyday living to combat the sin of arrogance. Everything we have, we have received. Why would we ever so arrogantly act as if we have not received it? All good gifts are from God. James 1.17, all good gifts are from the Father above. Finally, our last point of application, our election and knowledge of the truth must accord with godliness. So how, again, do we apply this? Simply put, we live our lives as instructed and commanded in Scripture. In order to do this, we must first commit to what? Reading and studying Scripture. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. To attempt to live godly lives without the lamp that God has provided us is dangerous and foolish. And again, in my example-dependent mind, I was thinking about this. I thought, okay, what would this be like? How would we feel, God forbid, and I hope this never happens to anyone in here, but if you, were, if you had to go into a major open-heart surgery and take you in, they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get everybody sterile. We're going to do everything. We're going to sedate you. We're going to go under. We have to do this life-saving or um, life-taking surgery. And as soon as we're ready, everything's set. You're going to be sedated. Everyone's going to be prepped. We're going to cut all the lights off. And then we're going to get to operating. Would any of us feel good with that plan? That we're going to, the surgeon's just going to be tinkering around in our chest with it cut wide open with no light? Absolutely not. That's how, that's as dramatic as that sounds, it's more foolish for us to attempt to live our lives on this earth, in this dark world, without the light of God's Word shining down our paths. We have to be dependent on the light that God shines on our path. If we are to live lives that accord with godliness, they must be rooted on a knowledge of the truth that God has ordained to His children through His Word because of His gracious election and the faith that He grants to each one of His children. We do the good things that are taught in Scripture. We love others. How do we love others as Christ loved us? How do we know that? By reading about how Christ loved others, how He forgave others. If we are to imitate Christ, we have to know Christ. We have to know what He did and what He didn't do. And we can't take other people's words for it. We have to test everything and hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Why would we listen to what the world tells us about God? when we have what God told us about himself right here revealed to each and every one of us. Elizabeth read this book years ago called 
the heavenly man, was it about the gentleman that was saved in China? And how it breaks your heart listening to this man. He would have traded his limbs for a Bible. All he wanted was the Bible to just be able to read more of who God was. We have Bibles around all of us all day, every day. We have got to treasure it. We've got to know Christ if we're going to live like Him. We have to. If we're to imitate Him, we have to know Him. We're to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven. And most of all, Matthew 5, 16, let our light shine before others that they may see our good works and what? Give glory to our Father who is in heaven. John the Baptist said it best, Lord, may I decrease so that he, Christ, may increase. God elects his children, and he ordains the faith that he gives to them. He provides the knowledge of the truth that ties them to that sound faith. And by his Holy Spirit, he uses that knowledge to fuel godly living and Christ-like sanctified people who, as we will study through Titus, are redeemed for his possession. And what, what does he say in chapter 2? Paul says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Zealous for good works. My prayer for all of us is that we will live lives rooted in truth, according with godliness. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this night. Lord, I thank you for the gospel and the privilege to, to have your word, God. And I confess before you and before my brothers and sisters, I do not treasure or value your word as I should, and I'm sorry. I thank you that all that I lack, Christ supplies and provides for, Father. And I just pray for every brother and sister here, Lord, that you would draw us closer to you and let your word be living and active in us, God. May it be a seed planted deeply in our hearts, Lord, and may it spring forth and bear much fruit, fruit in keeping with repentance. Thank you for this night. Be glorified in us. Make us look more like you and forgive us for what we fail you. Please, Father, in Christ's name, amen.